Shobindo reveals to us, just as Swami Vivekananda has said, that yoga is a means of concentrated evolution. So in each of age of mankind, there are some who spearhead the evolutionary movement. And once they break through a critical barrier, then the rest of humanity follows. That's how evolution takes place. Now, this is one side of the story. But the other side, which is equally interesting, but often not much spoken of, is that just as yoga helps in human evolution, Equally, as humanity evolves, yoga also evolves. So for each age of mankind, there is a yoga specific to that age, which of course continues because something of that sticks on to man. So, Shobindu reveals very beautifully that when man is mostly conscious in the physical, he is not much conscious of his inner being, he is not much awakened in his thoughts, feelings, aspiration. It is for that kind of humanity and in that age of mankind that we have the heart yoga. Primarily aimed at pressing the body, squeezing it, releasing the divine energy which is concealed within matter. It's the most ancient yoga. Shobindu speaks about it as the yoga of the Lemurian kings. Because in that age, man is not yet conscious of anything still higher, still deeper. But then as man evolves, he becomes aware that there is a mind, there is a life of thoughts. Not that the physical man is not aware of these things, but his thoughts and feelings are centered around the everyday physical life and it, you know, existence, the physical framework of life. But as man evolves, he becomes conscious of something still other than the physical and that is the mind, thoughts, feelings. He begins to live in these worlds, in this, these domains. And for that kind of humanity, which is primarily centered in the mind, we have the Raj Yoga, primarily focused on mental processes. But then mankind evolves further and becomes aware not just of a mind, but of something still deeper, something more intrinsic, something like a subjective self, within which there can be a seeking which is higher for something beyond. And for that kind of humanity, we have Adhyatmi Yoga, of which the classical example is the Gita. So when people speak about what physical things are to be done in Shurabindu's Yoga, what are the methods and practices, very often they forget that even in the Upanishads and the Gita, with which we swear, we don't have physical processes which are described, except very briefly, Sri Krishna speaks of concentration in a certain, this very small little portion of the Gita. But primarily the processes that are described are intrinsic and psychological, because the starting point is different. The starting point is that man has become aware of his subjective self, and he has become aware that there is a need to go beyond. So it's enters, he's already taken us uh, through the Gita into Adhyatma Yoga, where there is a launching pad is quite high. Very often, because, you know, when people speak about integral yoga, they feel integral means something for the body, something for the mind, something for something else. 
So it is asanas plus pranayam plus meditation. And uh, of course, turning to mother is also something like a token added to it. And that becomes integral yoga. Shobindo clarifies that such a practice will lead to confusion and not a synthesis. Synthesis is to pick up the essence in every yoga. And do away with the external processes because man is capable of doing it, you know. Earlier, one simple example is that, you know, now uh, one has to switch on the light. There used to be a time when we had to uh, switch on the light and then the light will come through whatever complicated process. But, you know, we have right here next to us the bathroom where you walk in and the lights come. You have done away with the switch. You don't need the switch. How does it happen? The process has been understood that basically a contact needs to be made between this and that. And whatever means, it's not always through the physical switch, through sound, through clap, through just uh, you know picking up sensors, picking up the human body, and it can happen. So essentially, the same thing applies in yoga that we have processes, and if one is still at that stage and feels the necessity, one can use them. But equally, the processes evolve. You know, there is a very nice story that I heard about a guru and a sishya. So, sishya has learnt a mantra and is very excited about it and he goes and tells people, you know, say this mantra three times and you will get moksha. And he is very happy about it. So, he comes back to the master and he says, you know what, I have spread the word. He said, what did you tell them? I said, you know, you say this mantra three times and you will get liberation. And Guru says, all wrong. What do you mean? He said, see, you got the external. You missed the real thing. What is the real thing, Master? The real thing is not about number of times. The real thing is, if you are in an inner state, even once calling God's name is enough. You don't need to call twice. You don't have to tell again and again. And if you are not in the right state, thousand times will not make a difference because you are just, you know, punching it mechanically. Of course, some difference would be there. But the essence is that in every yoga, there is the essential and there is the externals. And Shurabindu gives us the essential, extracts out. And on the, to that essential, he adds something which is new and beautiful and unique. So what are the essentials of this yoga? We have a preliminary preparation and in many yogas we have a preliminary preparation where uh, we are given some yamas and niyamas, certain do's and don'ts, proscriptions and prescriptions. So people often ask, what are the things to be done and not done in this yoga? Can I eat, uh, do I need to eat only organic vegetarian food? Can I do this yoga taking non-vegetarian food? What dress I have to wear? What code I have to follow? What time should I get up? Should I take a bath and then sit for meditation? Because, you know, that's how mankind still lingers. And Shubhinda would tell us none of these things is really necessary. They are peripherals. What is the auspicious moment to take God's name? We should put it that way that the moment we take God's name, that moment becomes auspicious. It's, you know, <laughs> flipping the side. So... Uh, in this yoga, we will see very little of these things, hardly any. Even in the ashram, initially if you see the rules of the ashram, the mother would again and again say that, you know, I am not in favor of rules. 
because she knows herself. <laughs> as simple as that. <laughs> Only one who is not sure of oneself will say, do it according to this, do it according to that. But she knows she is infinite. She knows she is the Divine Mother. Doesn't matter. <laughs> Turn to me, open to me and I'll do the rest. That's why in those days, Sri gave one rule to follow. Not too many rules. One simple rule. And I think this rule, if one follows, one can, you know, completely change one's life. One simple rule. And Nalnida calls it the golden rule. Actually, Shobindo in his letter speaks of it as the golden rule. One rule I can give you, uh, give it to you and for others. He writes in a letter, always behave as if the mother were looking at you, for indeed she is always present. So simple. And you know, if we really keep it in mind, I am meeting people, I am speaking with them, I am, you know, going to a mall, I am <laughs> sitting and doing this exercise, I am eating food, but she is there, she is looking over me, watching over me. When I am sleeping, she is watching over us. When I am waking up, it is she who is bringing me out to, you know, once again undertake the great journey. This rule itself can change, you know, it can go a long way. In fact, if we really do it sincerely, it can lead us through the journey of yoga. Because what else is yoga? But the contact of the human with the divine. That's what yoga is about. So the processes are a means. They may help, they may not help. If we are too much about the processes, we miss the essential. But if we know the essential, then whatever way we make the contact, it doesn't matter. And this is a simple way. Still, when people insisted much later for the ashrams, he gave some rules, very simple rules, four rules to follow. No drinking and smoking, no drugs, no sexual intercourse, and she gave no politics. The most difficult part, incidentally, is no politics. <laughs> because politics has nothing to do with parties. You know, people think, oh, I am not doing politics because, you know, I am not subscribing to this party. Politics is in built in human nature. Lust for power. Greed, ambition, that is politics. Groupism is politics. I am above you. I must get into that prime slot. <laughs> it's all politics. So she gave these four rules. Because of course, ambition and um, sexual intercourse, we know, are dangerous to yogic life. They were not uh, rules from a moral point of view. Because uh, Shubhinder and the mother were far beyond this. At the same time, they knew that it's not that one day we... Take it up and because we have read it, it's possible. There is a long process to it. But nevertheless, the sadhaka must know what are the things he needs to get rid of his nature today or tomorrow, swiftly, smoothly or through a process, long process of time. But nevertheless, one has to get rid of these things for a simple reason because one is pulled down from the higher consciousness. That's all. I mean, if one has not had the higher consciousness, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> so these were not rules meant for... Uh, you know, somebody is seeking a normal life because one is at the same plane. Uh, a simple example that I often use is that, you know, people ask, is it good to give organ donation? It's regarded as a great act of compassion. Well, in ordinary life, it doesn't matter. One of the first organ donations is blood transfusion. It's an organ. You give it to somebody else and you receive blood from other. It doesn't matter in a normal, ordinary circumstance. But when we begin to pursue yoga, when there is a stamp of the higher consciousness even upon our organs, upon the body, then things change. So when Champak Lalji wanted to give his eyes, donate his eyes, uh, and he thought it's a good cause and you know, 
like a sadhu and the mother when he expressed to mother I want to give my eyes mother suddenly put her hand on his eyes and said no 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 they are my eyes these eyes belong to me you just can't give it to somebody we don't know there is a mingling of consciousness so in this yoga as we proceed further and further automatically we become aware of things which pull down the consciousness and things which help the consciousness to grow. That is the simplest of ways and the mother puts it very beautifully to be conscious. Take for example a simple thing. Marriages in India are more sacred than perhaps anything else. And if you don't go to a marriage, you are regarded as somebody who is an outcast and you know, why you didn't go as if you have committed a crime. <laughs> Whether it will last for one day or one year or ten years is not relevant. You must show up and show up with a big packet. It's the size of the packet that will determine your love. I hope things are changing. But you know, I often, um, now I don't go, but at one point of time I used to feel, I am going to just carry two roses and give it. No, 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 you can't do this. This is not done. You must take a lifafa. I said, okay, in the lifafa I'll put only prayers. <laughs> I mean, just out of fun, <laughs> to have some fun. You must have some fun in life. But people, you know, it's so sacred. But from a yogic perspective, when we get into that kind of a uh, space where people are all the time, uh, the whole atmosphere is full of ostentatiousness, show, display, sham. We talk of falsehood and it's there all around. It's not worth it. It's not going to help. Even things which may regard as religious, Going to temples. Now, I know as a child when I would go to temples and I would feel very strange that people are observing what dress somebody is wearing. The mother-in-laws are busy, you know, talking about their daughter-in-laws and daughter-in-laws are never good for their mother-in-laws. And vice versa, because the mother-in-laws are never good. You know, there has to be a villain in life. How else do you satisfy your, you know, the, the wish to feel persecuted and victim mentality? So, it was so strange. Now, going to temple is not going to help there. It is going to degenerate the consciousness. Mixing all kinds of influences. It's not healthy at all because there are people, there are forces, there are beings which pull in different directions. We don't even realize. And that's why when mother was asked, it is, is it okay to mix gurus? She said it's as dangerous as going to different doctors. Because they pull in different directions. One is enough. And if we are not sure that Divine Mother is capable enough, then yes, then we better, you know, try some other remedy. <laughs> but if we know, if we are sure that she is the Divine Mother and she is in herself infinite, then what is the need of, you know, we have a very beautiful, um, and the Mother has spoken about it. So, uh, a very beautiful example in Tulsi Das, when he was asked to bow down before Krishna and do pranam, he is a greater God than Rama. Because Krishna has 16 attributes and Rama had only 12. <laughs> so Tulsidas said, see, I was very poor in mathematics right from beginning. I don't know 12 and 16 because I don't know to count other than 0 and 1. Yogis know only two counts, 0, 100, that's all. <laughs> in between is not relevant. <laughs> because, you know, we talk about 12 attributes, but they themselves are infinite, incidentally. The mother herself says, they change. So we should not limit it because divine is Anantaguna. But Tulsi Das says something very beautiful. 
he looks at Sri Krishna and says, you know, they are asking me to bow to you because you are also divine. But you know, I am in a dilemma. And then he tells him, Kaha kahun chhabi aap ki bhale birajo nath tulsi mastak tab nave dhanushvan lohat. You are sweet, wonderful. I am sure you are very charming. You are the most charming of all. Such a darling. Yes, Krishna, with your flute you look majestic. But you know, I can admire all this, but I can't bow to you. If you want me to bow to you, please pick up a bow and an arrow. Take the vanvasi form and I'll prostrate at your feet because that's what is for me the epitome of divinity. People often ask when they go to ashram and there is a, you know, often a misconception that people carry when they go, you know, they have read books, life divine and high philosophy and transformation. They are expecting, you know, they'll go and see beaming yogis sitting in meditation, chanting something and, you know, all talking of supramental planes. And they go and see what is it people are entering, opening their chapels and going to samadhi and doing like this, taking agarbatti and putting it there. Oh, this is another cult, all rituals. Well, there are no rituals in this yoga. But there is a significance in doing pranam this way. When Sri was asked that, you know, one can surrender to the divine insight. So, why is it said that surrender to the Guru is the surrender of surrender? This is the question. The divine is inside, the Guru is inside. So, why does one need to surrender to the Guru outwardly? And Sri says confirmed this. He said, yes, it is considered as the surrender of surrenders because... With the Guru, you surrender even externally, even your outer being, which one cannot do when you surrender inside. But when it's the Guru, what, do one, what does one do when one bows to the mother and, you know, touches her feet? This is one of the things that the mother said, three modes of surrender. One of them is prostrating before the Lord and opening oneself, each center and offering to her. This is one of the modes she has said. Of course, we can do it ritually and then it doesn't carry the, any sense because the principle is missing. It's not like I am lying down for half an hour and looking around how many people are seeing, how long am I lying down. <laughs> then it is surrendered to the ego. But when one does it with the heart, when one bows, you know, people ask what is the significance of pranam? Now, here even our outer being is participating. That's what is the integral aspect of the yoga. It's not the heart yoga because in Hatha Yoga, very often Hatha Yogis are extremely egoistic. Shobindu confirms this. Take the history of Hatha Yogis and you will see. Because Hatha Yoga, you work upon the body, but not the mind, not the subjective self. So that whole area remains in darkness. There is tremendous ego. And very often unconsciously, one doesn't even realize it. Because one has not even looked inside. But here, when one bows down to the mother... What is engaging in the yoga? The body. When one looks at the mother, what is engaging in the yoga? The eyes. When one hears her words, what is engaging in the yoga? But the ears. When one tastes the dining room food, what is engaging in the yoga? The taste buds. Every which way, what is engaging in the yoga when one has offered some lovely flowers and then the fragrance comes to one? flowers which are offered to her. It is a yoga of the senses. So at every level, one engages in the yoga. So much so that I take it like this and, uh, you know, because in ancient scriptures it is said that when you go to a 
Tirtha, there is a story of Draupadi that you know, when you go to see the Lord, every step you take gives the results of an Aswamedh Yagna. Now, leaving aside the exaggerations etc, we need not get into that. But the point is that feet are walking to meet the Lord. And what is happening now? The feet are engaged in yoga. That's why the mother has released yoga from all these trappings that you have to every day get up and do a set of exercises. All that you need to do is engage in the yoga with the body. So beautifully, Sri says, the mother says, to work for the divine is to pray with the body. Just engaging. See, in dining room, I had one of my first experiences of work was in dining room. The second was in marbling section and it was so beautiful. I didn't want to do medicine. I thought I am done with it free. I don't want to do this ignorant kind of medicine till you know they pulled me back. Because that was giving such a joy so concretely in the body. It's very difficult to explain. And I often advise this when people ask where should I work when I come to the ashram. I want to work somewhere. Go to dining room. It's a very good uh, you know, treatment for the ego. Though you know, even that becomes an ego. Recently somebody sent me a WhatsApp message. That you know, in Gurudwaras, people uh, do Juta ki Seva. I am aware because I have the, the background. I said yes and then they come out and say very proudly that, look, you know, I did Juta ki Seva. <laughs> Human ego can creep through any door. But granted that, you know, one must remain conscious and vigilant, it's a very good corrective to the human egoism. And uh, Sri Krishna has shown the way in Rajasuya Yagya, how he, you know, picks up the Juta Patal and, you know, gives it to a washing. So all these are simple things with which we engage in yoga and we miss that opportunity because we are looking for a special process at a given point of time in a certain way taught by X or Y or Z. No, that's not it. When mother was asked about Hatha Yoga, she says from our experience we have found that no particular set of exercises can be regarded as exercises like Hatha Yoga. What is she saying? So she says, so disciple asks, then what is to be done? She says, very simple. You are climbing up and down the stairs, climb consciously. So it's very nice that in Furman you have one third floor. So every day by the time we reach here, if we are doing it consciously, we have done the heart yoga. And then there is no limit to it. We don't have to worry what time do we do it. We don't have to carry the, even the mats because the mat called the body is always with us. This is the original mat. <laughs> And all that is needed is to do it consciously. When we are walking, to do it consciously. With her name upon her lips. What is pranayam? People also want pranayam. And pranayam gives them a lot of energy booster. Ah, I do pranayam every day. People don't realize that doing certain kinds of pranayam aggressively can also lead to blood pressure. They are not aware of it. It's a simple fact because you are taking a booster of energy, prana, which is not the best form of energy into your system and it's not very healthy because you know it will give lot of energy and those days people led a very active life. They did lot of pranayam but they also did lot of walking and lot of real physical stuff. But how to do pranayam in this yoga? Very simple. Sit for a while or walk for a while. Think of the mother with each breath. That's the original pranayam which gopis taught to Udhav. When he came and said, all of you are mad in love with Krishna, 
you are crazy people, you don't know yoga, you have not read the yoga sutras. What is it Udhavji, please tell us what we should do. He said, you know, you sit, I will teach you pranayam. What are, what are we to do? You have to master your breath. So the gopis tell him that we don't have any more our breath. It is given to the Lord. It's no more with us. What do we master? And he comes back chastened. So Mother and Shubhinda has brought back the yoga to its pristine glory. That's what it is meant for. And the more we become aware of our subjective self, of an inner aspiration, the more that's the take-home point of this yoga. That's why we will not find many rules and regulations. And yet the golden rule. Another very interesting thing. People often, you know, they have, I mean, it's not just unconventional, but how beautifully they put it. Uh, Mother describes in one of her visions that, you know, uh, experiences that she is seeing who are the people who are fit for the supramental life. And they are, you know, somebody is there testing them and some are accepted, some are rejected and some have to go back and prepare. And then she says, when I got up, I was laughing uncontrollably. So the disciple asked, why mother? And she says, you know, many things that are regarded as very important from the spiritual point of view and moral point of view had no importance at all for the supramental life. Whereas there were other things which were of much greater importance. So I am sure he must have been shell-shocked. So he didn't ask the question that time. (laughs) Later on he asked, mother, what is it? That, you know, is not so important from the supramental life point of view. She said, you know, particularly in India, certain ascetic ideas or a way of life that you must get up at this time and do it this way. She said, it has no importance. Very often it only leads to rigidity of consciousness. What you eat, what you don't eat. And then she added, for example, and then she, in a very amused way, she says, Sanctity of marriage to which so much importance is attached. You know, we need uh, such a wideness to even receive. We talk about receptivity. To receive the Niagara Falls, one cannot be small and weak. One has to be vast. Otherwise, it will be vast away. The man with the little lutia standing below Niagara will be vast away. Forget about receiving. The divine is infinite beyond all measures, beyond all systems, beyond all conceptions. Somebody went to mother and asked her, I am ready to do whatever the divine wills. Except for one thing, I cannot kill anyone. But I am sure the divine will never ask me to do so. And mother simply asked him, how do you know that? And he didn't have an answer. How do you know that? It's not that the divine will ask us to kill or not ask us to kill. The point is, he is infinite beyond all these things. And yet a drop of love is enough to tie him. You know, the Shobindas poem, God, where he reveals who is God. O thou who pervadest all the worlds below, yet sittest above. Master of all who work and rule and know. Servant of love. Servant of love. You know, we have the famous Vaishnava Tantra where the images of Krishna bowing down at Radha's feet, putting his head on her knees and saying, please forgive me. I was absent whole night. This night is not just the night, the way you know one understands it in a carnal way. 
That's a misunderstanding of the entire Leela. The night of the soul, when for some reason the Lord has not shown up and he says, I'm sorry, forgive me. But you know what? I was thinking of you all the time. <laughs> you have to go through that night. But you know, I was still holding you. This is our Indian version of that story of God carrying the person when he sees two footprints. This is there in Indian thought in a very beautiful way. He says, I was whole night thinking of you. Radha, please forgive me. He goes one step further. But you know, I know I was not here physically. So this is the inner state in which we have to awaken. So then the disciple asks, then what is important, mother? Because these are the things we thought are very important. So she says, wideness and plasticity. Wideness. At every level. We just read a description uh, in the beginning in Savitri of what kind of beings came to her. Even those divided between wonder and revolt. Those who were hugging to her for their small human needs. Craving a like response from the divine. That just as we are, you should behave like us. There were people going and praying to the mother, he is my enemy, please punish him. So that man began prospering more and more. So the disciple asked mothers, last few years I am praying. <laughs> and what results I see just the opposite. This is a very interesting story because it touches an ancient truth about yoga. He is prospering more and more. He is healthy. He is growing. Everything is happening good in his life. <laughs> Have you heard my prayers? Yes, my child. Then mother. Well, you see, what is happening is, you are bringing him in contact with my consciousness. What do you expect will happen? In ancient yoga, there is even a yoga called Vairabhav. Kansa, why he is granted liberation? Because all the time he was thinking of Krishna, Krishna, Krishna. My enemy, Krishna. He is the one I must find, Krishna. He is the one I must kill, Krishna. So ultimately he left everybody because he was so paranoid that Krishna is bribing this fellow. Krishna will turn this man against me. Eventually he was surrounded by Krishna with, alas, with the enmity of Krishna. So Krishna says, okay, I will come and I will liberate you. You want to meet me as an enemy? I will come as a wrestler. So as we approach that wideness, because the divine accepts whatever faith in whatever way we approach him. So very often people talk about distinctions, you know, between disciple and devotee and this and that. All mind-made things. What does it matter? I am sure the divine doesn't have a category of, you know, people. Who is this person? X. Okay, put him in disciple category. Y. Okay, devotee, devotee. Z. Okay, we'll, we'll keep him on hold in limbo. We'll decide, figure out. <laughs> General category. We'll see where he fits in. For him, there is none else but himself. For him, we are not different and other. We, we, we fail to see it that he is not a human being who is putting people in slots. For him, who are we? Mother was asked, Mother, what is the divine? I was saying so many definitions he has <laughs> given. One of them was, she says, who is the divine? What is the divine? The divine is yourself in many disguises. 
we read that line you know in savitri as if an aspect of their own self had put on a garb of divinity that is how who is she in one sense we can say in the in in the truest sense that she is within us our own utmost so she comes to express it becoming human so that we can recover that and whatever way we approach it becomes a path we can approach her this way we can approach that way we can we can believe that we must do some vigorous exercises then only she will be pleased she'll say all right uh, somebody can say that i love you ma and i trust that you love me okay fine come to me or like duman bhai somebody may tell her mother i am doing your work you do my work and mother would say yes that is perfect you do my work i'll do your work so based upon our faith that is why faith is one of the fundamental necessities and because faith faith also expresses differently it evolves you know it starts with something very rudimentary and external but eventually it becomes a vision in the soul and even if the whole world contradicts the divine presence yet the yet if the eye of faith has opened then it sees and finds the divine even in what appears as torture unbearable to mortal nerves one says well my lord loves me therefore he is taking me this way but it takes time so all these qualities they evolve wideness the understanding evolves it's a wideness where which is not bereft of and right arrangement of things there is also rhythm in it everything has its own place everything has its own time because we are dealing with things in a time space matrix so things have their own place and their own time and one place mother says and i think yesterday i was very happy that you touched upon you know kranoti and putting things in its right place you know she says what is evil mother says evil is things are not in their place as simple as that there was a time for something when it is not in its place even things which are appear as holy can become evil because you know they become anachronistic we have gone past that stage so that wideness at many levels not just a, a flat wideness but a wideness in which the whole creation exists coexist in a hierarchically arranged manner and behind all of that we see have the vision of the one and second quality when she was asked what else is needed she said plasticity plasticity so divine as his way is a wonderful sense of humor and you know we have to be plastic to her touch we are you know plasticity we all know we we are plastic to everybody around our life but we have to become plastic to her touch you know that's what the what mira says that if today you want me to wear moti ki mala you know a garland of pearls i'll do it happily but tomorrow if you want me to just put all my hairs unbraided i would do it happily if you want me to sleep on a wonderful bed well cushioned latest dunlop no dunlop must be old now i don't know water beds and many beds i'll do it happily because there i will find your embrace but if you want me to sleep on hard floor i would find your embrace there also so see equanimity can be approached in so many ways people often ask how to you know practice equanimity well i can tell you the bhakta's way bhakta's way is to see everywhere the divine presence it is he who is holding then where is the problem if things are comfortable well 
maybe my body finds it comfortable but there too we have to live with that sense that it is she who is holding me and when things appear hard she is still holding me a very nice story which indicates about trust so a husband and wife were you know in a boat and they were suddenly you know there is storm and um, they are, they don't know what's going to happen but uh, you know the wife appears unfazed she is very quiet so husband doesn't know what's happening so he is getting agitated so he pulls out his sword and puts it on her neck he says what are you doing can't you pray can't you do something and then she laughs he says i have a sword over your neck and you are still laughing he said yes of course i know you love me why would you kill me i know i have the trust in you and then she adds that is the trust i have in my creator why would storm is an appearance behind the tsunami i see kali with all her hairs or shiva matted you know shubindra describes shiva matted forest head mountains and if we begin to live with that sense then yoga becomes a way of life otherwise it becomes a specialized process and shubindra says it in the very beginning of synthesis specialized processes have their advantages but they also have their great disadvantages because then we become dependent on the processes i had a swami ji once traveling with me to a uh, you know to some conference and the swami ji tells me you know he was becoming very un- uncomfortable because in the train it was 8:30 9 o'clock he was becoming very uncomfortable so i asked him what's the problem he said you know i i have to do my japa i said then do it he said no i need to take a bath so i said take it where go to the bathroom take a bath it was second class compartment no 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 i can't take it there you know I, you know olden times india somebody has to cook and where the water is coming from all those uh, nuskhas and you know totkas <laughs> so tables <laughs> so he said i can't take a bath and he's uncomfortable i said call god's name what is the problem no 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 that's how my guru has taught me i said okay fine you be uncomfortable i am going to do my take my lord's name he was not uh, mother's devotee but he wanted to go for the conference to hear so i thought felt like telling him that mother has already given you a most important experience of life be plastic be wide don't be tied to this way or that way and certainly not my way but your way your way your way that is plasticity and the third thing she said is stillness equanimity we don't allow space for god to act even in the most terrible disaster seeming situations if we can just remain immobile and obviously it won't come unless we have practiced it all over life then that disaster can be swept away last minute an intervention can come something can happen but we have to learn to remain immobile the mother says it's only through a perfectly immobile consciousness that the supramental force can act but if there is the slightest agitation slightest disturbance slightest you know kind of fear or worry it doesn't work classic example was when the ashram was attacked and ashram has been attacked number of times 
and in india it's well known that ashramas have been attacked from ancient times because wherever there is yagna there the asuras come to destroy it so the ashram was attacked physically you know with stones and all i'm sure many persons know some may not know and at the end of it naturally nothing happens so at the end of it the mother says you know i wish everybody could remain absolutely in a state of perfect trust and immobility but people were getting agitated so i had to wait i had to ask them to calm down and kali was here and she was keen to destroy everything but she would have taken some of my children also because she was saying that with these children you want to build new creation <laughs> i had to make her quiet and then she described there was only one man one person who had perfect quietude right down to the cells of the body there was not even a trace of fear guess who pranabda pranabda pranabhatacharya pranabdada he said even in the cells he didn't have the slightest trace of fear that what may happen stones are flying should i do this should i do that and yet he organized the defense of the ashram but without a slightest trace of fear he said that is the state in which we must arise immobility so in life we have so many situations to practice it that's how the yoga goes through life through all the processes through all the events and circumstances and situations but when we have to ascend from one stage to another then there are certain tests that's what we started on the first day that these are tests by three kinds of forces forces of universal nature which are fine as long as we have not tried to go beyond but the moment we want to go beyond them they start telling us no this is not done you are being unfaithful to us and you have to say yes i know but what to do now i have to be faithful to her so they will not allow us they will give all kinds of excuses reasons see when buddha walks out of the house people still say he did something wrong he left his wife yes true but buddha was being faithful to his aspiration i must find i must he was moved by the suffering of humanity and therefore buddha's going to the forest is as much an act in the light of the gita as arjuna speaking up the weapons shubhendu clarifies that because that's his aspiration he is moved by that seeking and he must be faithful and sincere to his seeking and just as you know we should be faithful and sincere to our own seeking so in these are the forces universal nature then second is adverse and hostile forces they come and obstruct in various ways they throw doubts fears all kinds of things and we have to face them we will see these 12 qualities mother describes under this the examiners so when hostile forces she says humility vigilance sincerity it helps us because how do they come hostile forces they try to throw they try to attack us if you feel i am someone great but when you are humble i am nothing it is see who is everything who am i but a leaf blown by her breath a child in her la- in her hands you know ganesha himself when he is out he can be attacked but imagine ganesha in the divine mother's lap which asura or rakshasa from any world will dare to touch him because she is there so humility is a safeguard vigilance 
vigilance is to not only there is a negative vigilance to be careful about things which are entering into us but a positive vigilance to immediately pick up this moment of progress and make the pro progress somebody praises and something within is saying ah so nice you know my greatness that time you should give a rap tap full you know when udarda came to america and you know he was that shining look and handsome person with all the things that you know charming gurus have which draws many people because of their charm so <laughs> so so when you know people said you know he has become a guru so when he comes back mother asked him first question udar i believe you became a guru when you went to america in america it's so easy to become a guru so <laughs> so he says no mother no mother no never she said very good otherwise i would have given a hammer on your head and blown it humility it's important what is one self but her breath so then the third level of test is by spiritual and divine forces you know this yoga is we have been knowing it's a long process one has to navigate through many things after all it's a transformation of nature not achieving this goal or that goal one is not allowed to stop anywhere there is a constant progression you know there is a very beautiful message the mother gave do not look left do not look right right go straight forward to the goal so one constantly moves in that way there is no time to say respite because i had this beautiful experience or even a realization we see that in shurbindu's own life so these forces will come and say no 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 we'll give you something quick shot spiritual and divine forces sometimes there is a masquerade and one is lured attracted by the apparent ways and there one has to remember if something i am i am to receive let her give it let it come from her and if not she knows better when to give what is to be given if at all my joy is in giving myself to her so this way the yoga proceeds through all the innumerable experience countless experiences of everyday life mother puts it very beautifully that every day there are many innumerable windows that open to the infinite it is just that we are closed we don't notice it so many ways the creator speaks to us so this is the basic thing and one of the things which i strongly recommend before uh, you know we we read a little bit of savitri Uh, people often ask uh, you know which book to read shurbindo's book mother's book etc etc uh, if you really seriously want to engage with yoga one of the things which i um, uh, really advise uh, which i have myself done apart from reading some of the books is read shurbindo and the mother's life you'll be surprised it has a purifying and invigorating effect it has an inspiration value you don't have to ask what is humility take gratitude for example mother's life you will read a story there was a very uncouth person who was always given a special place with you know mother would always uh, give him preference and he could go and meet her you know on all pranams darshan and people used to wonder he is not even seemingly a devotee why does the mother indulge with him so much and champaklal ji once asked mother he said you know when i came here 
I went onto the street and I asked this man, where does Shurabindu stay? And he lifted his finger and pointed to me, the Lord's house. For this one gesture, and it's not just one life, she remembers through lives, you know, story of Amritha, you know, we know how close he was and he is rather, he is so much conscious and alive and active. And when he was, you know, one of his lives, he was the priest. Among the people who were there when the mother, as Joan of Arc, as a vibhuti, her body was being burnt on the stake. And she wanted a cross. And he is the person who in that life, because nobody would give a cross because she is being burnt because she has apparently gone against and away from the church. And he quickly with a hay stick made a cross and threw into the fire. That gesture the divine notes. Nobody sees because he is the eternal witness and the divine's gratitude. Someone sent to her one pesa. Yesterday we were talking about offering. Mother gives the story of half an apple. A lady had eaten half an apple and Shiva comes disguised as an old man asks for something. And she says, I have nothing but this half an apple. You know, like Shabri's story. But Shabri knew that he is the Lord. But this story is amazing. And Shiva was very happy because that half an apple was a complete self-giving. So someone sent to mother one paisa or, you know, which he had gathered through the journey and he was hearing from disciples who were talking about mother. And this man says, I, I have never seen your mother, probably never I will see, but I have heard such lovely things. Can you go and give her this one paisa to her? Or one rupee, sorry, one rupee to her. Of course, even paisa meant a lot in those days. So he said, fine. So he goes and gives one rupee, puts it in mother's hands. Mother goes into a trance. You know what she says? She says, the divine will find it difficult to pay back to him. Divine will find it difficult. When we read these stories, nobody has to tell us what is gratitude. How to inculcate it. We read it and it just goes inside. That's what I was saying. Like Ramayana, like the Bhagavat, Savitri is like that. And we need not read anywhere else. Just Savitri. And of course, there are wonderful books. Two books which at least helped me a lot was 12 years with Sri Amazing book. What patience? We talk about patience. He is waiting for his first meal. 9 o'clock, 11 o'clock, shifting to 1 o'clock, 3 o'clock. And the Lord is waiting like a veritable Shiva. And we have self-realized people. And Sri describes them in his poem. He said, <laughs> He said, I am egoless free. Then I asked, Are you sure? Because he shouted, because his meal was not ready. He said, I am egoless free. Then he shouted, because his meal was not ready. So I asked him, are you so very sure? He said, it's not me, but my belly God that is hungry. <laughs> that is how we play tricks with the divine. But we don't know he is a greater trickster. So he knows all the tricks. So we can't play tricks with him. Sincerity. We read mother's life. You know, sometimes we don't even take a note. You know, we easily go through that, yes, 1920 next year, you know, uh, next to next year. 
we'll have the centenary of the mother's final arrival to India. 20 to 73, 53 years. Now imagine someone coming from France, living in Tokyo, a most beautiful place, coming from France with that elitist culture. There is no doubt about it that France, in terms of its culture, at that point of time was definitely a, a hub of you know, cultural renaissance in the world, speaking of equality, fraternity. And when she would have come here, staying at night in a room which was riddled with white ants and rats and whatnot, and yet she didn't feel like going back? What is this? What an inspiration. She had her son here. She had her own life here. She had so many things. Who could cut the moorings like this so beautifully? And then in, you know, look at, uh, you know, bhakti and uh, humility. When she is asked to talk about her life, you know, this is the ideal, perfect humility. Imagine in, in the situation of the mother, prime ministers are coming and bowing to her. Normally, if somebody asks, you yes, tell us about your life. Oh, you know, the other day Nehru had come and he asked me, you know, how am I doing? You know, president comes and, you know, Are tell me about your life. And, you know, we will talk big things. And, you know, what mother says, it's worth reading. The reminiscences will be short. I came to India to meet Sri Aurobindo. I lived in India to do Sri Aurobindo's work. And after he has left his body, I continue to be here to do his work, which is of, you know, that has to be read in original, of enlightening mankind and awakening that love and serving truth. That's all. Reminiscences. Mother, we want your life. Imagine somebody coming and interviewing her. But to disciples, she would disclose many things because it's an inspiration. God's own example. But this was officially when it was asked, she said this much. But to disciples, many beautiful things she has disclosed and that's all. Because she has to inspire us, show us the way, God's own example. Shurbindo, coming, leaving the freedom struggle and sitting here in Pondicherry. And those days, big people, they come and ask him, So, sir, what are you doing these days? Shurbindo remains quiet for a while and says, well, nothing. This is humility. These are examples of what... Re so when we read these things from their lives, nobody needs to tell us. We just, because we love them, or more importantly, we are able to love them because she loves us. Shobindo, his life unique, Rishabh Chand's book, another book, because these two books, Adventure of Consciousness, these three books are directly have been uh, inspired by the mother. Shobindo, his life unique, mother had asked Rishabh Chandji to write his life before Pondicherry, and she said, because nobody can write after Pondicherry. Read that book. It's amazing. You know, after reading it, you feel we keep complaining about our this problem, that problem. People who want to know what is positive attitude and how to develop it, just read Shurabindo's Tales of Prison Life. Yes. Tales of Prison Life. And you will see. So this is the uh, one of the you know, ways, just read Mother and Shobindo, read their lives. And I know it is infinite, uh, but time is finite. <laughs> so, we have a very nice little phrase in, in uh, I'll just read a few lines to close. Um, 
in in Hindi we have a very nice phrase, Hari Ananta, Hari Katha Ananta. There is no limit to the glory of the Lord. And the more we read, the more we come close to them. Because remember in the mother's um, symbol, we will read it. They are the 12 powers of the mother necessary for the manifestation. They are not qualities which we can develop in a mental way. And when we love her, all of it comes naturally. They are her gifts to us. So we will just close with few lines. we can just finish that little portion, page 365. In vain she stooped to equal them with her heights, too pure that air was for small souls to breathe, these comrade selves to raise to her own wide breaths, her heart desired and filled with her own power, that a diviner force might enter life, a breath of Godhead great in human time. Although she leaned down to their littleness, covering their lives with her strong, passionate hands, and knew by sympathy their needs, and wants and dived in the shallow wave depths of their lives and met and shared their heartbeats of grief and joy the divine becomes human and bent to heal their sorrow and their pride lavishing the might that was hers on her lone peak to lift to it their aspirations cry and though she drew their souls into her vast and surrounded with the silence of her deeps and held as the great mother holds her own only her earthly surface bore their charge and mixed its fire with their mortality her greater self-lived soul unclaimed within. Thank you.